Good morning, everybody. Yeah, I think we're going to have some healing for after church because uh, some of us played in the Frisbee tournament yesterday. And uh, yeah, I won't mention my age, but listen, sprinting and running and jumping and doing what you have to do in Frisbee is just absolutely ridiculous. But here's my medal. Um, um, those of you at the tournament who have to know how this worked, because I don't. But in any case, apparent our team was so good that our reserves won the tournament. There you go. So. <laughs> uh, it was great fun. Well done to the evening congregation, Bevan and your team. Just awesome. I think, yes, give them a round of applause. So well done, guys. You know, as we, as we begin to normalize and... Uh, a pretty bird whispered in my ear that Cyril might be talking to us tonight. Um, and, uh, but as we begin to normalize, the thing that, um, that I think we, we're wondering what to do. And the answer is, if you uh, just, just do things. Just organize Frisbee. Go on camp. Just begin to do things and life itself will begin to heal. We also like, yeah, can we, can't we, etc. And uh, I had to smile because, uh, uh, you know, some of us are masked and some of us aren't, and I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, and, uh, and that's true inside different households, you know, husband, wife, different decisions, and that's also fine. Um, I'm certainly not policing anyone. And, uh, and the other thing is, I said to the elders, we're not turning anyone away. If people want to come, people must come. We're not turning anyone away. So, uh, yeah, we pray that uh, some of the stuff that happens over the next weeks will help us in this journey of, of normalizing. So it's a privilege to just keep talking into the space of mission and community. And we want to look today at how they come uh, at, at one of the fundamental ways in which they come together. And uh, so where, where I grew up, about an hour's drive from my childhood home, is the town of Douglas. My childhood home is Kimberley, and uh, if you drive southwest, you find the town of Douglas, and it's famous for being the confluence of the Vaal and Orange Rivers. Um, and when you go there, now confluence just means the coming together. And uh, when you go there, you see the Vaal River and it brings like a wide ranging change in the area. It's got a lot of irrigation schemes on it. And it's, it's quite a sort of like tameish river. It's, it's like, I mean, obviously there are floods and stuff like that. But, you know, it's slow and it's green and... It's like makes its way sedately through the countryside and the farmers can use a lot of it and everything like that. And then comes this raucous orange river. Like, I mean, it's still churning up soil after hundreds of thousands of years kind of thing, you know. And it, you know, every few minutes it's another set of rapids and everything. I don't know, I don't know how they manage this because... Their source is very close. In fact, the same thunderstorm, when it hits the watershed, some of it goes to the orange and some of it goes to the vial, and yet one lot comes down and seemingly so different and the other, uh, again, uh, so different. And yet they can literally come. Those raindrops can fall in the same thunderstorm but end up having a very different journey. But at the town of Douglas, uh, they would make their 
way together. And in one sense, sometimes we might think of community as that safe uh, place where we can, you know, irrigate and make things grow and all the rest of it. And so like think of community as the nice warm love that we have with one another. And, and, and it's that so like Vile River metaphor. And then there's the brave people like Adrian who want to do mission and who want to turn everyone into missionaries. And, uh, and then, you know, and it's sort of like this turbulent and one moment you're doing this and the next thing, you know, just when it calms down, down the next set of rapids. I mean, Orange River looks like a thin green stripe. You know, the, the Vile seems to have changed the whole surrounding neighborhood, whereas this Orange is just so on a mission, you know, to, to kind of get where it needs to go. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when they begin to flow together, even for the first while, sometimes you can see the green and you can see the orange, but after a while, they simply become one. They have converged. They have, uh, and, and that is at the place of confluence. And in one sense today, I want us to just look and understand that mission and community, although you can think of them as different in different ways, in the kingdom of Jesus, they flow together. And they have already come together. And one of the things we're going to see as we go through the next few weeks is just how missional the kind of community that Jesus creates and how communal the kind of mission Jesus creates. And you can't really get into one without coming to the other. And so they just constantly as it were, moving one and the same. Now, we've got a very simple reading this morning in John chapter 13. Jesus, literally about to face the crucifixion, says in verse 34, and most of us would know this, these verses by heart, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, most of this morning's message is going to focus on application, because the theology behind this is, well, it's just not rocket science. Uh, I mean, there's only so much word study and grammatical syntax and everything that you could do in this passage before you actually get to the fact that the main point of this passage is loving one another. Probably theologically, the most significant thing is that he says it's a new command. Now you're going, wait a minute, isn't love commanded in the Old Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How is this a new command? As I have loved you had never been seen before. The love of God as revealed in the person and the mission of Jesus had never been seen before. The depth of God's love, the extent to with which he would go, and the understanding of this, that the very next day, Jesus, greater love has no one than this. He would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus died for you and me. Jesus 
redefines the depth and the meaning of love. And so, so radical is the new place that he can say, I'm giving you a new command. Because the command is, in this thing of love, you do it like I do it. We walk as Jesus did. We reproduce the full life of Jesus. Yet again, we're back to the overarching theme that Jesus is the way. He's the model. He's the method. He's the path. And he is saying in this area of love as well. And the moment we start doing that, we begin to recognize how this shapes mission. Because he then says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, your mission gets vindicated. By this, people begin to see the truth. That you are my followers. You're apprenticed to me. You're my disciples. So I want to... That's the theology, so we're going to jump into application, and we're going to look at it in our place in history, in our response to the pandemic, and in, in our mission at PBC. And then we, and we're going to interrupt the sermon for some prayer as well. So firstly, our place in history. And I mentioned this briefly at church camp, but I said there that we, we're going to come and go a little bit deeper inside of this. Um, the last 20 to 30 years have seen a massive cultural shift in how the people see the world, how people see the world, and how they decide what is true. A new worldview called postmodernism is shaping society, morality, politics, and so much more. And it's a way of thinking, of seeing, that includes a deep skepticism about truth claims. In fact, making a truth claim almost immediately makes you suspect because people understand that truth has the power to influence people. So if you make a truth claim, why are you trying to influence me? Are you trying to control me? And we've become deeply programmed to resist all controls. Now, to say that all truth claims are uh, uh, the extension and expression of power is itself then <laughs> it's a self-defeating logic because it means that truth can't be trusted including the claim that all claims are merely an expression of power you understand logically it doesn't hold okay but we've never really worried about logic the spirit of the age goes with your gut feel far more than it goes with what your brain is. And so you can work it out logic. You say, it doesn't make sense. But you know what? It feels right. I don't trust truth claims anymore. There's so much fake truth. There's so much else going on. I'm, whatever you say, I still feel like this. Now, those feelings are actually conditioned massively by the world we're in and stuff that's going on around us. Fifty years ago, people had no problem with truth claims. And we might think, well, we're cutting edge. Well, in 50 years' time, there's going to be another set of challenges that are going to be it. We have to confront our place in history and the spirit of the age. And that's true whether you follow Jesus or not. But here's one thing it does mean for our mission. That simply shouting louder is almost sure to get you ignored. Because you're just making truth claims and shouting louder 
it's not going to impress anyone. If you really want to reach someone with the truth, you have to find a way to do it that doesn't involve raising your voice and simply trying to be, be more sort of like effective in communication than everyone else. Because if you just shout louder, it means the gospel itself gets ignored and your mission is walking down a cul-de-sac, a dead end. Now there is a path forward and Jesus is offering it to us in our reading this morning. If our culture is weary of truth claims and it's tired of fake news, there is something that it's willing to take very, very seriously. And it's a visible model of something that actually works. It's tired of talk. Show me your puppies and I'll believe that you're a breeder. <laughs> Until you show me the goods, like all the stuff you say is just noise. But if you'll show me what you can do, if you'll show me what your gospel can do, then I'll give you a hearing. Which means that clear, successful, real-life examples, honest, vulnerable, actual stories, a model. Our place in history will accept nothing less than a working model of real love, which is what Jesus actually anticipates. The new command I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know. By this everyone will know. A demonstration, a working model of love. You see, the impact of our mission depends upon the integrity, vulnerability and the depth of our relationships with one another. We're often thinking that in our mission, we must prove to the world that we love them. Actually, the first question is, can we show the world that we actually love one another? Then they might be interested in joining the us. The argument is not whether... And of course, you know, any church that takes Jesus seriously understands he came to seek and save the lost and that loving the lost matters. But Jesus didn't say the world will know that, that you're mine if you love the lost. He said like the real proof of the pudding is whether you can give them a working example and model and then when they see it in you, they'll know something about me is true. They'll know something about you is true. And then they'll want in. Our place in history. The genuine love for one another. Brave, vulnerable, sacrificial love. Dying love. Becomes the most likely reason someone will choose today to follow Jesus. You know, we've been praying for Ukraine and Russia for the last few days, and I must admit it's extremely tough to do so. And in one sense, I've had to self-critique my prayers because I've been wanting a really powerful solution, like a, a big God mountain-moving type moment in which, like, you know, and, and I don't even want to explain what I've sometimes prayed and then have to repent of my own prayers. Um, 
because I think that the strong man is flesh and blood and that if people would just deal with some of that nonsense then it would all go away. We look for a single solution. Do you know how much power someone has to have to be a single solution to this challenge happening in the Ukraine and in Russia? You're actually hoping in the powers and in the authorities and in the thrones rather than finding the million small solutions that actually will change and shape a whole culture and world and environment. It's not going to be a one-man solution. It's going to be millions of people making many good decisions, choosing righteousness and justice, and subverting the powers. And so one of the ways that I thought we could do is to pray this morning together. So Cindy's going to get us to turn our chairs into little circles. You don't have to pray out loud. You can just say, listen, I'm listening to the rest of you pray, but maybe make circles of six or seven. And we're going we're to literally stop and pray into the situation, the Russia-Ukraine situation. And it is. It's an invasion of a sovereign country by another. And it's the invasion of the only country in the world that has willingly disarmed itself of nuclear power. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, including the undertakings made by other governments to ensure they'll never regret that decision. And so as we come, there's so much going on. We don't know how to pray, but there are some things that do inform our prayers. And so Cindy's going to help us. Okay, so if we could get into groups, as Craig said, just round circles where you are. If this is totally foreign to you, that is absolutely fine. Join a circle and I'll help you uh, kind of feel more at home in that space. See, everyone's got a circle. Oh, okay. Do you just want to say, if you're not comfortable praying, that's absolutely fine. You get to listen in and be part of what is happening, okay? The other thing we want to say right up front is that war is not okay, okay? We don't agree with war and what is happening, all right? What we do agree with that there are people in every situation on both sides that have influence. And then there are those that know and love Jesus that have influence. So we want to be praying, just as Craig has spoken, that love would win. True love would win. That God would give words and gifts to his people right now wherever they are, to influence and bring change. And we're praying for millions of those to rise up. Okay, 
So in our groups right now, we know that in a crisis of this extent, there must be masses of background meetings happening, crisis control meetings happening at government level. So we want to be praying into those meetings. Can we ask that we spend, we start with right at the top. Let's pray for government, okay, for leaders to hear God's voice to model who he is and to bring love and hope into that space. Let's do that. And now we want to move on to even a more powerful vessel, the church. Let's pray for the churches on both sides, for courage, for boldness, for sensitivity, for the Holy Spirit to lead and move and guide for community and for mission. And then let's pray for communities. They've been ripped apart this week as fathers and dads and brothers have been sent to war. Pray particularly for the vulnerable, the lonely, the aged, those who don't understand, the children, who have just been thrust into things they have no say over. Father, I thank you that you are still the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and there is no one greater than you. And as you have modeled love for us, as you've poured out your life. So Father, as we continue to walk with you, won't you show us what that looks like for our local community and for our worldwide community? Won't you keep prompting us, speaking to us, leading and guiding us as we stand in the gap for brothers and sisters for whom life right now may seem hopeless and uncertain. We pray for courage to act, for boldness to speak, but for an overflowing of your love to be evident in all we do and say. In Jesus' name, amen. So we continue. We live in a world in which real love, and yes, accompanied by a witness to the truth of Jesus, because he makes himself the standard of love. Don't miss the logic. It's not just love. It's love in which Jesus is the standard of love. He's the measure. He's the margin. Becomes the most likely reason evident in us that someone else will choose to follow Jesus. So that's our place in history. The second is our response to the pandemic. I don't know about you, but the last two years have been some of the toughest times that we've had in our lives. Certainly Christmas or two ago was one of the hardest I have ever faced. And just this week again, um, on Friday morning, got a message that one of the best men in my, at, my, at our wedding had passed away. Not of COVID, but nevertheless, um, yeah, three funerals in the last two weeks, uh, not from the church, but affecting us in our own lives. And, um, and so, yeah, Thursday afternoon, uh, uh, another funeral uh, of 
one of my first deacons ever back at the church plant in Hilton and uh, and being in contact with his son and uh, and then watching that and I don't know about you but it's it's almost it's it's tough it's tough it's hard to kind of dig deep I was in a meeting with some pastors who lead some very healthy churches and they were describing like trepidation for all the rebuilding that lies ahead and for example Damien uh, who's nominated to be our next chair of finance so that's why you got a good plug from the finance side thank you Damien uh, so the head of our finance team um, and, and one of the realizations is that we've already cut our budget significantly in the last three years i mean inflation factors out the window just even in absolute terms we're almost less which means that we're operating on on a real base of uh you know, you know we're down to as as little as we can possibly ask of people and we're at a point where we have to go well either we do stuff and then you know there's, there isn't much wiggle room. And we can see potential and we can see opportunities, but we also see the constraints. And so all these factors playing into the decision as we're making time and you're wondering, how do we go forward? Well, prophetically, I think church camp was a picture two weeks ago where people from Explore Evening and even Sophia and Clara from Classic came. And so much of our time was spent living together, eating together, playing together. You know, of course, it made no sense to put on masks once we started worshipping together. And one of the young moms said, camp was being, pl- being plunged into a mighty river. All the staleness and disconnection of the last two years feels like it has been washed away. And there's an opportunity in doing ministry and community together to find that refreshing and that renewing again. And so there is a response to us. And maybe another example will help, but unfortunately it it reflects on war. But World War II, its after effects defined a generation or more. I met a a while ago with someone who described just a couple of weeks ago um, how ration cards remained in place in the UK for for 12 years after the war. So the war ended in 1945. You still needed ration cards to get bread and milk for another 12 years. And uh, Ruth Andre across at Classic, because I preached the same sermon there, uh, she just laughed because she actually was clearing out and found one of her ration books. Defines a generation. And one of the things that came out when you've lived with that is waste not, want not. How many of us, our grandparents and parents, we have heard that before. And when you've had to make do with almost nothing, you make do with what you've got and you, you don't waste it. But even more significantly, out of the destruction and pain that that generation had seen, experienced, and some of them even inflicted. They had pulled the triggers. They had pressed the plunges. They were deeply changed into a generation that wanted to build. In fact, generational 
theory describes that generation then as the civic generation because they literally came together as civil society to build. And, and some generational theory actually just calls them the builders. And we use their airports and we drive on their roads and we sail from their harbors and a hundred other forms of construction that they literally, they'd seen so much destruction that they were determined to build and it defined a generation. I think the last two years have the power to change us and define a generation going forward. People have experienced the destruction and the erosion of community and relationship and connection with others and they want it back. And Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. I believe we have a harvest season opening up to us because people want what has been taken from them and we have the ability not just to offer it to one another but in the season we have a window opening up before us to invite people into the depth of love and community that Jesus offers and I think they'll begin to fight for you <laughs> they're certainly willing to contend with the thing that's been taken from them so our place in history, our response to the pandemic, and then our mission at PBC. We exist to reproduce the full life of Jesus in everyone he, he, he gives us. Now we're very clear. We, when we talk about reproducing the life of Jesus, one of the things, although we follow his example even unto death, and we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, there's something unique about his death. He paid for the sins of the world. In other words, he made atonement and none of us can do that for anyone else and we don't need to he's done it once for all one man for all people one occasion for every occasion one act of righteousness so pure and powerful atoning for all unrighteousness 1 john chapter 1 uh, sorry chapter 2 verse 1 the apostle says I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. How righteous is he? How amazing is he? I want to be very clear. You and I can never atone. And it's wonderful because we don't need to he's done it he's done it fully he's done it utterly he's done it completely and if you put your trust in him you too can receive the benefits of that righteous life being given imputed imparted to you so let's be very clear we're his body on earth to do the everything else that has been made possible because of that death and his life becomes our model. And if we are as his church, his body, then we are here as if Jesus is here. That's what a body is, isn't it? You know, it'd be weird if you, you know, you're dead. 
if there's a body and the person is absent. We're his body. We are here as if Jesus is here in our mission, in our ministry, in our spirituality, in our community, in our love. But here's the reality of it. If we're his body, it's the spirit of the person that makes the body alive. And so if we want to love like Jesus loves, if we want to live like Jesus lives, then his body must be filled with his spirit. And in recent days we've seen, and I'm talking not just about the Ukraine, I'm talking about the pandemic, I'm talking about the whole fake news thing, I'm talking about forces that are not just happening in, in Eastern Europe and in Russia, I'm talking about forces that play out in Cape Town and in New York and in Paris. We have seen fear and control and discouragement and isolation and alienation seemingly running rampant and they are coming to define the prevailing culture. And people are wanting something different. They're desperate for something new. People feel trapped. They wonder if there's a way out. Someone who can point them on a path forward outside of, as it were, this cul-de-sac of chaos. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're mine. If you love one another. You see, the, the king of this commandment frees us from the spirit of the age. Those things, that fear, that isolation, that thing which has defined a generation. If we will find Jesus, we will find the thing that frees us, but we will also find the thing that people desperately want. You see, when our mission and our spirit is like that of Jesus, our community will look like Jesus. And that is what is opening up before us, I believe, right now. How many of you remember 2017, 2018, living in Cape Town with day zero approaching? I mean, we still haven't got our toilets clean of the sediment of all the junk that we use to flush. You know, it's just like... And, and in some ways, Cape Town's water consumption, again, has simply not returned to pre-drought levels. But do you know that in the Western Cape, agriculture has had its, some of its greatest harvest years post the drought? Anyone know that? Now, apparently part of the reason is this. During the dry season, the plants have to push their roots down deeper and they reach much further or else they will die. They have to find whatever moisture was available. And the plants that didn't do that simply are no longer there. But especially as it related to trees and vines and, and orchards and that kind of thing, those plants went through a season of distress. And apparently on the surface, you weren't getting fruit and you weren't getting result. And the harvests were tough and rough 
and nearly and saw some people go into bankruptcy and others right on the edge but if the plants made it through that dry season now with their new as it were renewed root system as the rains begin to fall their fruitfulness is exponentially more than pre the drought And so the hectareage that people are getting, the returns per hectare that, that farmers are getting, are just like shooting the lights out. When the rains return, you get record harvests. Explore. When we think about the recent years in terms of love and community and connection and even mission, we've had some dry years. But the dry season is over. Elijah prayed seven times and when he saw a cloud the size of a man's hand he said to his servant it's time to run it's coming explore I believe that there are critical doors of opportunity that are coming to us right now and our mission and our love, our connection to one another and our willingness to reach into a hurting world of pain. If your root system has made it through this time, God is preparing you for a fruit outcome that is going to give you, ah, oh, it's going to blow you away. And you know what, as Mordecai said to his young niece, Esther, You've come to the kingdom for a time like this. You've come to the kingdom for a time like this. Explore. Now is not the time to be backing off. Now is the time to let God like fill your thoughts. And can I say it? Fill your homes. Like one of the things that we've had to do is turn our homes into these closed spaces. And we're going to have to find out what it is like to open people and invite them into a Jesus-type banquet encounter with friends and family and lots of people and where we learn in more ways than one for the masks to come down and for the love to be real. You see, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you can love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples.